Well, morning, my name's Tom, and I believe we're starting a, a series on Acts, and the confusing thing is I don't know how long it's going to go for. Um, does anybody know how many weeks we're going to do Acts for? I don't know. I'm, I'm, do, I'm doing the opening one, so what do you reckon? Like, yeah, six weeks? Cool, that. that's, that's the average, isn't it? Um, I'm doing the opening one today, uh, and we're picking it up in the story of Acts where we meet Stephen, and this is obviously in chapter 6, but a few things have already happened. The key events primarily being that Jesus has ascended up to heaven. And if you want to come over with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is like a, if ever there was a summary verse for all of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is it, and it's, it's quite helpful to know what's going on. Uh, I'll pick it up. From Acts chapter 1, yeah, there we go, verse 8. But this is Jesus speaking to his disciples before he's ascended to heaven. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then after this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him before their sight. So it's a pretty major event in the grand scheme of God's salvation history. Um, he, he tells the people, wait in Jerusalem, power's going to come. Uh, and then sure enough, in chapter 2, um, at the festival of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes to the people. And finally, after many years of waiting, uh, God indwells his people and we have a real and living connection with God and to Jesus through the Spirit. And so that's the major events that have kind of happened and then just prior to this story, the church here so far is pretty much Jewish and they're pretty much in Jerusalem. And so that command to, to wait for the, uh, the gospel to spread to all the different places really hasn't happened yet. And this is the moment where we pick up the story uh, and we meet Stephen. Uh, now, the question is, what is Stephen famous for? He was... The first martyr, right? You guys heard that before? This is uh, the, the kind of classic way that Jesus is introduced and, and held in our history. But we've got to ask that question, does the Bible want us to view him as the first martyr? Because there's not much evidence that Luke, the author of this book, was really interested in, in putting him up as this hero, as the very first one to die for the Christian faith. Uh, that, that hero status really isn't there in the text, um, and so I guess we're forced to ask the question, well, what, what does Luke want us to make of Stephen, and, and how do we understand him? Because apart from him uh, being the first martyr and, and him being very famous, the other thing that he's probably very famous for, at least in, in my eyes, is giving a long speech. Um, and, and if we can learn nothing more from this today, it's that uh, sometimes God can use a long and repetitious sermon to bring about his amazing ends to the end of the world. Maybe that's what we need to learn. But that's, that's, from a distance, Stephen is a guy who is the first martyr and has a long and repetitious speech about Jewish stuff to Jewish people. Like, could you imagine if you were there in the audience, you're like, come on, like, we know this stuff, we, you know, we are experts on Moses as well, and yet he decides to spend 53 verses. Um, I, I imagine it was longer in the original, um, but that's, that's what he does. Anyway, regardless of that, the question that's probably better to ask is, how does Luke, the author of Acts, want us to view Stephen and the effect that he has in the, the whole story and the narrative of this journey because uh, obviously Acts chapter 1 at verse 8 says uh, hold on you'll get power and then I'll send you from Jerusalem to Judea and then all Samaria and then if you noticed at the very end of our story uh, chapter 8 verse 1 says on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and uh, uh, 
against yeah, Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, kind of directly linking in to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And so I think this is the primary way that we're meant to see that, that, that Stephen was a tool who was used by God to enable the, the furthering of the gospel into all of the nations. Uh, but more than that, I'm kind of curious by Stephen because he presents as this really interesting guy who holds this fascinating tension together of being, at, at one time, he's, this, he's got this sweet and serene, resolute faith. And then on the other hand, he has this urgent and intense activism. And yet the two are kind of held together in this beautiful tension throughout the narrative. Um, if, if Stephen were a bear, I think he would be a panda and a grizzly at the same time. Can you kind of see that, you know, that panda image of like, hey guys, I'm comfortable. I've got bamboo. I'm just going to sit here and fall asleep. I've got the providence of God knowing that he's in control of everything. And yet at the same time, he's got this intense urgency of a grizzly. Like I'm going to fight to defend my, you know, my cubs or or whatever. Um, and, And the two are there together. So the plan is to spend a bit of time looking at how these two uh, kind of aspects of Stephen's character, his serene and resolute faith and his intense activism are held together in the one person. So if you're going to follow along with me, let's pick it up from uh, chapter 6, verse... Oh, well, well, even before our reading, if you've got chapter 6 open there, um, Stephen is actually introduced to us in passing prior to this event. Uh, There was a little uh, event in the church where uh, there were some Greek widows and there were some Hebrew widows and they weren't getting a fair amount of food for each one of them. And then the apostles had to step in and kind of sort that out. And they were like, hey, this is taking up a bit of our time and we want to do a bit more preaching. We need to appoint some godly people in order to help out with the allocation of food to the Greek widows and to the Hebrew widows. And at that point, that's where Stephen gets introduced. And so the first thing that we know about Stephen is that he's a guy that works in the soup kitchen you know he, he, he does hospitality he's, he's kind and generous happy to work with the yayas and you know make sure that they've got everything that they need uh, and so that's Stephen but then we get more formally introduced to him in chapter 6 verse 8 where it says Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power he was kind and strong he had uh, an intense activism and at the same time a serene and resolute faith and so how does that play out well, you get the first taste of his strength in verse 10 when we find out there's a bit of opposition against the church. The authorities are not enjoying the rise of this Christian movement. Uh, and so they're getting into an argument and it just so happens to be that the guy from the soup kitchen is standing up and in front of the synagogue uh, telling people about how Jesus is the fulfilment of Moses and the law and temple. And this upset the guys so much that they were like, man, this, this guy, we, we cannot argue with him. He just slams us every time. And so obviously the only way forward was to frame him. And so I think it's in uh, verse 11. So they secretly persuaded some men uh, to speak some words of blasphemy against him. And they wanted to bring charges against this guy that obviously had some kernel of truth, like he'd obviously been speaking about temple and about Moses and about changing things, but they wanted to bring it against him in a way that was quite legal and and normal and expected, uh, even though the, the, the charges were false. And so they bring these false witnesses together and they drag Stephen before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish law court, which has about 70 people, I believe, in there. Uh, And they uh, get to this point where they want to bring the charges against him. And so uh, we we get to see um, 
the, oh yeah, yeah the, um, verse 15, that's what I was going for. Uh, in verse 15, just at the point where they're going to bring the charges against him, they were all sitting in the Sanhedrin and they looked intensely at Stephen and, and they, imagine at this point that you're Stephen and uh, you know, a, a couple of hours ago you were serving soup and a couple of months ago you watched Jesus be dragged before the Sanhedrin and then you watched the brutality unfold as he was killed in an incredibly shameful way uh, before the Sanhedrin and then here you are and you're dragged before them and like you know if I was in that situation my face would be sweating I would be looking pale I would be searching for a new pair of underwear like it would just be all very intense and yet in verse 15 it says and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel it's reminiscent of when Moses went up into the mountain and he met with God. And then when he came down, his face was radiating with glory because he'd been in contact with the true and living God. And this is the kind of picture that we get from Stephen, this serene and resolute faith because he has that personal relationship with his master. Uh, and so then they, the, the high priest asked him, are these charges true? And this is where he switches from panda to grizzly because for the next 53 verses, I think it is, uh, he just sets up this incredibly dense argument uh, and it's not even a three-point argument. Like, you know how classic sermons are a three-point? This one's a four-point, so he's like, you know, going hell for leather on it. Um, and the, the basic guts of the, the sermon is that God's place uh, God's presence is not bound to one place. And he argues that through Abraham in Mesopotamia, through Joseph in Egypt, through Moses also in Egypt and in the wilderness, and through David with Israel and the temple. Uh, and so he, he goes through this really systematically, really slowly. You can imagine the intensity of the people there, and yet he slowly <laughs> makes sure that you know, he, he wants to know that the, he wants the, the other guys to know that the Bible is incredibly clear that God's place is not bound. God's presence is not bound to one place, and it can be found in Jesus even. Um, and so he's quite um, the grizzly bear throughout this sermon is. I imagine him like as the grizzly bear with his glasses on. Do you know what I mean? Like he's, he's sound and he's reasoned, but he's still a bear. And then we get to that final verse in 51 uh, where it's you stiff-necked people. And that's the point where he takes off his glasses and he goes, you stiff-necked people, like with uncircumcised heart and ears. And that's where like the claws are out and he's getting this real urgent intensity in the way that he wants to defend uh, the Old Testament and how it all leads up to Jesus. This, this guy has, yeah, a serene and resolute faith, but at the same time, he has this intense and urgent activism. Uh, and so, obviously, at, at such an intense um, attack on them, the, the people are just like crazy. Uh, and so when they heard this, this is in verse 54, they're furious, and it describes... This is the people who are in the Jewish law court, the Sanhedrin, it describes them kind of in, na in animal terms. And they gnashed their teeth. Uh, and so, but Stephen, even in the face of that, full of the Holy Spirit, this is where he switches back to Panda. He looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is... Uh, reminiscent of when Jesus was uh, also before the high priest Annas. And you can read about this in Mark chapter 14. And the high priest says to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And then Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God uh, and the clouds descending. Um, this, this is the picture 
that picture that Jesus describes of him, of a, of a glorious and, and mighty triumphing picture, Stephen gets to see that and be comforted by it in the face of this intense opposition. And, and he, he tells the people that that's what he's seeing as well. And so the response, of course, to, to those people is that they revert from animals into like intense four-year-olds. And they're like hands on ears and they yell. Um, verse 57... At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. So one Stephen, about 70 men plus others, they all rushed at him at this point and they dragged him outside the city to begin picking up stones in order to kill him. Now, keep in mind that at this point in the story, the Romans had removed the right of the, uh, the Jews to be able to inflict capital punishment. That's why there was so much toing and froing between Herod and Pilate and, and Annas for, uh, when Jesus was before all of those guys because they had, to, they had to have a legal right to kill him. But yet in this situation, the legal law court for the Jews, the Sanhedrin, just decides, look, this has just gone far enough. You, you know, you've just... Uh, insulted us too many times, we're just going to take you outside, pull apart a stone wall and start chucking it at your head. Full rage. And yet, in the midst of this, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And then when he had said this, he fell asleep. And the way that Luke describes his death here is just fascinating because as far as deaths go in the Bible, this is one of the more R-rated ones, isn't it? This is uh, religious-incited mob violence um, overseen by the authorities. It would have been a bloody and brutal way to die. And yet Luke describes this as it's almost like Stephen has an active role in this. He, he, he actively went to sleep to be comforted by the knowledge that today he will be with God in paradise. That, that's Stephen. Is he a fascinating guy? As, as you kind of step back from all that and, and see that story, do you see the fullness of the picture that we get of Stephen, this, this panda and the grizzly? Uh, for me, I, I'm encouraged by him. Uh, I, yeah, I, I quite like you know, uh, grasping that tension. But I, I think one thing that's helpful to ask is how, how is it that Stephen is able to hold this beautiful tension? How is it that he's able to trust and have such a serene faith and yet at the same time have an urgent activism because sometimes the two don't go quite hand in hand? Um, I think there's, there's two real answers to that. The first one is quite simple in that Jesus promised that Christians would suffer and he was really upfront about that. In Luke chapter 9, uh, Luke chapter 14 and probably most clearly in John 15, he says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And so Stephen had a real expectation that following Jesus in this particular political climate was likely to mean uh, persecution and oppression and potential violence. And so to, to understand him, firstly, he just had good expectations of what was coming to him. I think the second reason that he was able to hold this tension so beautifully is because like so many of the models of faith in the Bible, he was able to uphold two doctrines at the same time. And these two doctrines are first being that God is absolutely sovereign and yet at the same time we have a real and genuine moral responsibility. Or, or to put it a bit more simply, God is good and in control and free will is genuine and real. And Stephen, in a, in a very helpful way, puts the two together and shows how a biblical understanding is to hold the two in an unexplained tension. Um, see, uh, 
if, if we uphold one against the other, then things get a little bit messy. If, if we were to uphold divine sovereignty, this idea that God is in control, has planned everything, uh, knows everything, and has and enabled everything by his good and gracious power, and then we decide that, uh, that human free will is, re- is not real and non-genuine, then this essentially makes God to be, our, to this, to be a totalitarian dictator like a divine puppet master who has convinced us that we have artificial intelligence, but we actually don't. And ultimately, it means that the sin that is in this world was created by God, that God is the divine author of sin. And therefore, any sin that can be punished should not be punished. For the wages of sin is, well, God created it anyway, so the wages of sin is nothing. And so God can just keep on tricking us because we're all just dumb robots. That's what happens if we uphold divine sovereignty and we forget about the reality of our genuine moral responsibility, our free will. And yet, if we go the other way and if we uphold free will, our moral responsibility, and say divine sovereignty is not as great as it should be, then we start to think that, well, I'm so in control of my life that my actions almost control what God does. And I can control my destiny to the point where God doesn't know what I'm going to do next, which makes me a touch more God than God. And in the same way, we we mess things up. But the reality is that the Bible presents these two ideas, that God is in control and that we have a genuine free will at the same time. It's like a a 100% and a 100% held together. And both of them together make 100%. It's bad maths, but that's, this is the reality of the Bible. It's an unexplained tension. Um, and so what I'm planning to do for the next couple of minutes is go through the way that Acts presents this, the book of Acts, as, as Luke has written it. Um, if you go with me to Acts chapter 4, verses 24 and 28, this is a helpful one to start at because it, it shows what Luke and, and Peter and, uh, and John think about how in control God is. Uh, and so this is the story where uh, Peter and John have healed a beggar and then they get dragged before the authorities and the authorities are like, hey, you should really stop talking about this. And they're like, uh, sorry, we're going to listen to God and not you. And then they release uh, Peter and John and they get to go back to, their, uh, to the people in the house and they get to this moment where they're all celebrating and they just break into this beautiful prayer. And it's in this prayer that we discover some really interesting things about what they believe about how much God is in control. And so I'll pick it up from chapter 4, verse 24. Um, they address God as sovereign Lord. That's, that's how they um, address him. You know, the, the divine ruler who is in control of everything. They said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And I'll skip down to verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You catch that? If you were ever to think of the most evil event that could have ever happened in history, you could argue that it was the death of God's son. And yet here, the death of God's son is described as... And the death of God's son at the hands of what seems like the enemies, Herod and Pilate, is described as something that uh, was they did what your power 
and will had decided beforehand should happen. So Acts presents to us that God is absolutely in control. So in control that he's even in control of, of you know, the, the greatest, most evil act in all of history. And so does this mean that, that free will is entirely nullified and we have none at all? Well, this is where the Acts steps in. And Acts is the story of the gospel going to the nations. And the way that the gospel goes to the nations is through individual humans making a decision to either repent and, and receive forgiveness or to reject. This is how it happens. If you go to Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 36, or 30, we're at 38, there we go. This is um, Pentecost has happened, Peter gets up and they're like, um, hey, are these guys drunk? No, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. And then Peter gets up and says, no, this is like the Spirit of God and this is Jesus. And then at the end of this massive speech, Peter says uh, that... Uh, Acts chapter 2 verse 38 Peter replied repent and be baptized every one of you you see where the onus lies on the individual responsibility you have the free will to choose to come to Jesus and and be saved even uh, verse 40 um, with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them save yourselves it wasn't a call have God save you even though that is genuinely true and theologically accurate but the onus here is to save yourselves because God uh, through acts we see divine sovereignty and human responsibility upheld 100% intention at the same time um, if we go to uh, Acts chapter 13 this is, this is again another really helpful and clear one Acts chapter 13 verse 48 this is a moment where Paul and Barnabas have been preaching to the Gentiles and this is a verse where the two ideas the two doctrines are slammed together in one sentence uh, Acts chapter 13 verse 48 when the Gentiles heard this they were glad and honored the word of God and all who were appointed to eternal life believed do you see the tension in that who, who's doing the work of believing in that one it's the Gentiles because they're... No, it's God because he's appointing... No, it's the Gentiles. No, it's God. It's, uh, it's both. Right? This is the reality of how Acts presents to us divine uh, sovereignty and human responsibility side by side. Now, the fascinating thing is how this affects evangelism. And what does this mean for us when we share the gospel with people? Because, like, if God knows that this person is going to be saved, right, I can just do nothing. And, like, it's... That, that person is his and, and they'll come and so I just sideline. Or the other way is like, oh, well, God has placed me in charge of this person's conversion so I'm going to convert them because it's my responsibility. Like, how do we marry those two up? All right, Acts is going to help us again. Uh, Acts chapter 18, uh, verses 9 and 10. So if you flick over to there, this is the story where Peter, uh, sorry, Paul, I'm up to, too many P names. Um, uh, Paul has gone on a mission and he's going to Corinth and when he gets to Corinth, he's trying to uh, reach out to some Jewish people and they weren't very keen or receptive to the gospel. And there was some uh, non-Jewish Gentile, like Greek or Roman people there that are a little bit receptive. Anyway, Paul is feeling a little bit upset about this. And so he's kind of thinking about leaving and bailing and he's a little bit scared. And so we get in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. It says, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Now, those many people that God has in that city, those many people at this point in time are not Christians. 
There's only one family who's a, who are Christians in Corinth at that time. And yet God speaks of the people in there who are already his. And yet how are they going to be already his? It's through the missionary work of Paul. And, and so God's command to Paul is to not be silent and to keep on speaking. Do you see how the two work together? Yes, God has saved them and will save them. And we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And God makes us alive. And yet at the same time, we have a genuine responsibility in evangelism to be active and urgent. And so I guess the question is, what does this look like in practice? And the answer is Stephen. Stephen is what it looks like in practice. He's the one who is able to hold together beautifully this idea that God is in control. And so he has a serene and resolute faith. He's even able to face death and and still pray for the salvation of those who are killing him this is this is Stephen see imagine if Stephen had reverted to like an anxious activism state where he believed that uh, it was his sole responsibility to ensure the conversion of the people around him they would have dragged him off to go be stoned they'd start pulling apart the walls to flick them at him and he would have caught the first one and then whipped it back at them and said no you listen here I'm going to convert you you stay there. And they would have called the other guys in and said, guys, form a barricade. We're going to convert these guys by force. And can you see how, like that, that's not the Christian gospel, is it? That's anxious activism, not understanding that God is in control. And, and yet, if he had have gone the other way, uh, could you imagine like a resigned Stephen who knew that God has just got everything under control and so I can, I can just give up at, uh, you know, at the point where the high priest called him and said, are these charges true? Stephen would have said, no. And he would have walked home. And then in that event, then the the persecution wouldn't have come and the gospel would not have been scattered to Judea and uh, and Samaria. And then, you know, Paul might not have been converted. We don't have the New Testament. Like, where are we at then? You see how we've got to hold them together. Um, I, I really appreciate Stephen because he encourages us to be the panda and the grizzly bear at the same time, to know that God is in control and yet we have a genuine responsibility to share our faith. And so uh, I'm going to wrap up and pray for us that we might do that. Sound good? Father, we thank you for the model of Stephen and the way that you used him as a tool to further your gospel and to, to scatter the people so that we might come to know Jesus here in Robertson. And we pray for us that we might be able to understand that you are in control. You are sovereign and Lord of everything. And yet at the same time, you have given us a moral responsibility to pick up your gospel and to continue furthering it to the end of the earth. Amen.